we have many friends and supporters of, of the Joshua Fund and, and listeners to the podcast who are very worried that drug traffickers, human traffickers, organized crime syndicates, and terrorists are penetrating into the United States. And how bad could it get? Well, let's pray it never gets as bad as the scenario in the Libyan diversion. What would happen if an open southern U.S. border allowed for the free flow of terrorism into the United States? And how does that relate to the Middle East and the epicenter? Hi, and welcome to this episode of Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg, a podcast of the Joshua Fund, a ministry dedicated to blessing Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. I'm Carl Muller, Executive Director of the Joshua Fund, and today we're talking with Joel Rosenberg in Jerusalem about his brand new novel and to answer that very question. Joel, uh, it's great to see you again. It's great to be with you. you. Your new novel, The Libyan Diversion, of course, has a Middle Eastern title and Middle Eastern theme, but it doesn't just deal with what's going on in the Middle East, does it? It actually takes a global view of what's happening. It does. Great to see you, Carl. And I'm so glad that you're there at National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Orlando. I'm a little jealous. I would have loved to have been there uh, myself, but it's great to see you and the Josh Fund team wow. uh, and the podcasting team, the Inside the Epicenter team on the ground there talking to people. And I'm glad to be able to talk to you. Uh, yeah, the new novel is a continuation of the Marcus Riker series, a former Secret Service agent, a former Marine who now is working for the Central Intelligence Agency. He's hunting down the most dangerous terrorist in the world, a man who's known the guerre or his war name, his moniker is Abu Nakba which in Arabic means the father of catastrophe, right? We, uh, Palestinians and many other Arabs around the world consider the day that Israel was reborn on May 14th, 1948, Nakba Day, uh, meaning a catastrophic day in the annals of uh, Palestinian and Arab history. So this main character, Abu Nakba, has been a character throughout a number of these novels, and he has a Libyan father, uh, thus the title The Libyan Diversion, but he has a Palestinian mother from Gaza, and thus he really identifies with the more radicalized Palestinian cause. Why is this connected to the United States? In this novel, it does feel very much like it's ripped from the headlines. All the yeah. interviews that I've been doing um, with Shannon Bream from Fox News Sunday, with CBN, with so many other you know, dozens and dozens of uh, interviews all across the United States – is because the Libyan diversion is about Abu Nakba trying to divert <laughs> or trick our main character, Marcus yeah. Riker, discredit him, get the president of the United States and the American people not to listen to the advice of Marcus Riker, while simultaneously Abu Nakba is trying to send terrorists, radical Middle Eastern jihadist terrorists, infiltrating into the United States through that very porous, unsecured U.S.-Mexican border. Why? Fascinating. Not just to pull off some attack equivalent to 9-11. No, no. Uh, these guys are trying to bring in dirty nuclear bombs wow. into the United States. Why? To bring off a nuclear 9-11, something far deadlier, far more catastrophic than 9-11 ever was, as bad as it was. And that's the premise. And that's what it connects my two worlds, right? I'm a dual yeah. U.S.-Israeli citizen. I live here. This is where the center of my life is. But but I was born and raised in the States, and as we've talked about on the podcast, and I love that. I love the United States, and I'm very worried. I will tell you right now, mm. Carl, I'm more worried about U.S. national security at the mm. moment 
than Israeli national security. Interesting. And Israel just had 1,400 rockets and missiles fired at us uh, just last week. So that's saying something. But you live on the border uh, in San Diego, and we have many friends and supporters of the Joshua Fund and and listeners to the podcast who are, you know, all along that 2,000-mile border. And they, like many Americans, are very worried that drug traffickers, human traffickers, organized crime syndicates, and terrorists are penetrating into the United States. Yeah. And how bad could it get? Well, let's pray it never gets as bad as the yeah. scenario in the Libyan diversion. <laughs> well, you've said this so many times, you know, and I, I'm sure, you know, uh, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but it came the day it was released to my house. And I'm super excited to get my hands around it because I'm traveling here with a small suitcase. Couldn't couldn't take this book. It's a great summer read. Uh, your books have always given me, you know, ample sunburn as I've not been able to get in from the outside while I'm reading those books. But, you know, this book really takes... Make sure it uh, takes an extra SPF 50 or something. SPF 50 while you read one of Joel's. We should send that with a copy of every book. That would be awesome. (laughs) But I I really believe that when, you know, you live in Jerusalem now and you have a U.S. citizenship as well, this dual citizenship has always given this international flavor to your books. This isn't just a book about the Middle East or something taking place in the Middle East. This is something that's a global catastrophe, potentially. And I think that's a very interesting part of this unique book. Tell me a little bit more, if you will, about, you know, where you came to understand this kind of problem and maybe even some of the specific things that you've seen in the Middle East that lead you to the maybe the possibility of this book's uh, premise. Well, look, uh, for my entire career as a novelist, I've been writing often about the intersection between the threats that we face in Israel. I mean, long before I became an Israeli citizen, mm-hmm. and actually long before I started with Lynn, uh, the Joshua Fund, I cared about Israel and I cared about the people of the broader Middle East, even though I wasn't a citizen here. I didn't live here. I came to travel here. But the threats that we face here in the epicenter, I never believed were going to be limited to the epicenter. You know, uh, one of the reasons I wrote The Last Jihad, my first novel, you know, it feels like a million years ago, but I began writing it in January of 2001, was because I was afraid that the very type of radical Islamist terror strategy that had been used by suicide bombers, for example, to infiltrate into Israel, come across our borders and blow themselves up in Israeli restaurants and cafes, on school buses, in nightclubs, in hotels. That same mindset, kill myself in order to kill many, many others, Mm. in order for me to go to heaven and them to go to hell, that is a demonic mindset. And while it was something that was affecting Israel from its foundation, I really was worried that it was coming to the United States, that if the United States didn't gets even more serious about defeating radical Islamism in the Middle East as a strong ally of Israel, but also to protect our Arab allies, it was coming home to America. And I was Mm. living in Washington, D.C. So I wrote this novel, yes, as entertainment, yes, to create a new career path for me, but also as a warning that the bad guys were coming and this is how they might be coming, right? The last jihad starts with the first page puts you inside the cockpit of a jet plane that's been hijacked by radical Islamist terrorists. And it's coming in on a kamikaze attack mission Mm. into an American city. Mm. Now I wrote that at the beginning of it, almost nine months 
before September 11th, 2001. And I was finishing the book, the last few chapters, on the morning of 9-11 in Washington, D.C. So it wasn't that I was predicting it, Carl. You and I have talked about this in the past. I didn't think of myself as being prophetic or psychic, or I later got called by U.S. News and World Report a modern Nostradamus. I'm not. (laughs) As you know, I don't always know my own future, much less anybody else's. But the question was, is there a logical extension? If you extrapolate forward what the radical Islamists want to do to Israel, and they consider Israel the little Satan Mm -hmm. in their eschatology, Mm -hmm. what's their main target? It's the United States, whom they consider the great Satan. So Mm -hmm. it didn't seem like rocket science to me. I didn't think I needed a Harvard PhD to extrapolate forward that at some point, radical Islamist suicide bombers were coming to the United States. The question was, how could they do something so spectacular that they would put themselves on the map forever? I thought of it as hijacking a plane. Unfortunately, that was uh, terrifyingly close to what really happened. Yeah. Well, you've always said, and I agree, you know, you just brought it out that you don't do anything more than take seriously what evil people say and then connect the dots. I mean, and you do it through a biblical lens, no question. You know, this isn't just some, you know, pulled out of the air. Your framework has always been informed by both the Bible and the current events and and statements of the most evil people on the planet. I think you share that conviction with great leaders like uh, Winston Churchill, who said, you know, we have to take what Hitler's doing seriously, uh, or we're going to see cataclysm. And, you know, unfortunately, the British people during World War II never did until it was already too late. And uh, unfortunately, you know, God... Almost, I think, almost too late, for the record. Almost I mean, too late, yeah. I think close. God intervened just before... Right, exactly. Right. And and if my point is... If you guys had not entered, yeah, London would have been lost. Yeah, and so many of these, you know, these things are simply there for, you know, observation. But you do such a great job of bringing those into highlight. But, you know, I know just before we take a break here, I know that you had a very unique way to get into this story. I mean, most people wouldn't consider a book with the title The Libyan Diversion to involve a great deal of the U.S. southern border. <laughs> and uh, I'm really right, curious. I, I should have called it Mexican Madness or the, know, something. Uh, no, I think, I think obviously, you know, you really do connect the dots there. And maybe when we come back after this uh, quick break, uh, you can talk a little bit about how you got the dots to connect from a good friend of yours. And then uh, we want to talk larger about your books. I mean, um, yeah, you've done some amazing things in literature and we want to actually come back and uh, explore what it really means to be writing books from this kind of perspective. So uh, we'll be back in just a second. Sounds good. Well, good day to you. It's Joel with The King Country dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. 
Discover how at museumofthebible.org slash impact. Our verse of the day today is found in the book of Psalms, chapter 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Our prayer requests today are, number one, pray for the United States, that God continues to watch over this nation and deliver its people from harm, from internal enemies. And second, pray that God continues to turn the counsel of our enemies to foolishness and also frustrate the plans of those trying to exploit the weakness in our southern borders for evil purposes. Well, Joel, we're back, and um, I'm just really interested. There's a really interesting story about how you got the dots to connect between Libya and the the Middle East and the U.S. southern border. And uh, maybe you could tell a little bit about how you got the idea for this novel in particular. Well, Carl, uh, you know, I'm always scanning the horizon and trying to find new ideas, new threats, new things to write about. And I really hadn't expected it to find it at a Joshua Fund event. But you and I were planning the first ever epicenter briefing. It happened to be in Washington, D.C. at the Museum of the Bible for major donors to the Joshua Fund and prospective donors and other allies. And what a great event, by the way. That was such an exciting weekend. It happened to be the weekend of the September 11th anniversary, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And so we had Joshua Fund staff, Joshua Fund board members, and we we were talking about what's really happening in Israel and the Arab Muslim world, and what's the Joshua doing to strengthen the church, care for the poor, educate the church, and of course, strengthen the local pastors and and advance the kingdom, uh, advance the gospel. And it was great. But you and I had talked about, well, is there somebody who could give us a really unique perspective that could be our keynote that weekend? And we kicked around a number of names, as you'll recall, and we settled on Mike Pompeo, Uh, Mike was a congressman when I first met him. He was a reader of my novels and had become a fan and had invited me up for coffee uh, to Capitol Hill. And so, but who knew that he was going to become the director of the Central Intelligence Agency and later the 70th Secretary of State. So that turned out to be great. If I'd been a psychic or clairvoyant or modern Nostradamus, okay, I would have known that. You would have known that. I didn't see that coming, and he didn't either. So we agreed that we should ask Pompeo. I called him. I asked him. He was very gracious. He said yes, and so that was a great evening. And I was also releasing my nonfiction book, Enemies and Allies, on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And we, you know, I interviewed uh, Pompeo that evening about Iran and Hamas and Hezbollah, and but also about Russia and China and North Korea, all the, all the major big threats, right? and how they affected the United States and how they affected Israel. So late in the discussion, as I recall it, I asked him a question I hadn't planned to ask him, but I said, you know, is there something I haven't asked you? You What keeps you up at night that maybe we haven't talked about, but that you're worried about as a threat to U.S. national security? And he he gave an answer that really caught me off guard. I think many in the room were, were surprised. He said, yeah, Joel, I'm worried about ungoverned spaces in northern Mexico. I'm like, okay, could you elaborate? Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm paraphrasing, uh, but basically the Mexican government has effectively surrendered large swaths of the northern border along the U.S. border to drug cartels, to human traffickers, to organized crime syndicates and other bad actors. And 
it's creating a real problem. He was describing, and I'm not trying to be political, I'm just relating what he said. He said, this is why, as CIA director, Secretary of State, working with Vice President Pence and President Trump, we were working so hard to build a wall and do other things to slow down that illegal surge and protect our national sovereignty and security and economy and so forth. So I hadn't expected that answer. So in the days and weeks that followed, I really was thinking about just how dangerous that was and uh, and how President Biden had taken a very, very different, very different, 180 degrees different approach to the border than has his predecessor. So I began thinking, well, what if terrorists just try to sneak through or walk across the border? Like, that's bad, right? I mean, am I wrong? I don't <laughs> that, have that a, would, would know, not a PhD be good. in this, but uh, <laughs> that seems bad. So in my own simplistic way, I basically <laughs> thought, well, what if? And that what if scenario, what if not only terrorists came in, but what if they tried to plan something worse than 9-11, you know, like a nuclear 9-11? How might that play out? How might my hero, Marcus Riker, try to stop them? How might they try to stop him? And how would it play out? And uh, that became the premise. But it was interesting. I, again, I don't think that's ever happened before that we've been at a Joshua Fund event and the kernel of a <laughs> the seed of an idea for a whole new novel has yeah. come. Usually my novels have nothing to do with uh, Joshua Fund events unless, unless they're, you know, uh, gifts for donors or something like that, which is lovely. But I didn't see that happening. But and so much. I, I actually one, one last thing. I forgot to say this to Pompeo. I just kind of got into my writing groove. Right. And then I had Pompeo for two weeks, two shows on the Rosenberg Report on TBN a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. And I realized, oh, I've never told him that he's the inspiration for this new <laughs> novel. So I did tell him. And uh, he uh, tweeted out this past weekend uh, his endorsement of the book. I, he was actually here in Israel also and I recently and I gave him an advanced copy. So – yeah, you never know where your sources are going to come from. But but coming from a former CIA director, that was a pretty solid It's huge. It's wonderful. And you've had uh, such great access to some other people in, you know, certainly uh, people who've endorsed your books, people who've read your books, you know, people you've mentioned, Mike Pence and Mike Pompeo. Where else did you get some of the background material? Because, you know, uh, a film major from Syracuse University doesn't come up with all of this stuff off their own. So how do you fill in that uh, that information? Yeah. Well, it's research. I mean, one level of research is just Google. I don't know how authors did this before Google and Yahoo and all the other search engines, right? You know, but now I can actually use Google Earth to go look at an actual hacienda and I can measure how far that is to the Mexican border and I can see where would be the best place to dig a tunnel under the Rio Grande. And you'd have to go to the library and do a lot of research in the old days, but now it's at the, you know, on your laptop. But, But, you know, the other element of this for me is, as an Israeli, you know, where two of our sons have served in the army here, as you know, and, you know, and you've got a son that's serving as well, and uh, not the Israeli army, but the U.S. military. But uh, Israel has figured out how one of the ways that you stop terrorists and drug runners and human traffickers with walls. Yeah. We built security walls. Sometimes they are just high tech fences, but in most places they're 18 foot high cement walls with all kinds of extra cameras and electronic sensors. But the idea is before 2002, we had uh, what was called the the second intifada Mm -hmm. in which there was a big Palestinian violent uprising and suicide bombers were just walking into Israel from the West Bank, from Gaza, and just walking into a cafe and blowing themselves to smithereens and killing or maiming everyone around them and on the buses and all the things I mentioned before. 
That was so bad. It triggered a whole war. But in the end, then Prime Minister of Israel, Ariel Sharon, decided, look, there's literally no way to know if a person walking in from the West Bank or Gaza is coming for a job or to kill people. And we don't have enough people to guard every spot. So we're going to have to build walls. And so that began a massive and expensive building program to separate what was then called Israel proper from mm-hmm. the West Bank. What we in mm-hmm. Israel call Judea and Samaria, but the world generally calls the West Bank, with the Palestinians called the Palestinian Authority. The question was, how do you separate the two peoples? Yes, there's doors. There are entry points where you can apply and come in for a job or for tourism with the right credentials, and you have to go through security like you're getting on a plane. Yeah. Then Sharon in 2005 decided to pull all Israeli troops and uh, soldiers and settlers out of the Gaza Strip. Mm -hmm. So then he built another wall between the Gaza Strip and Israel. So Mm -hmm. now you had two walls. Now, admittedly, the one with the West Bank didn't get completely finished. And that's a separate issue for a separate time. But the point is, the walls were there in the main population centers. And the number of terrorist uh, attacks dropped by 92%. So this tells us that it works. Now, of course, over time, if if there are holes or terror or or vandalism or you just don't finish it, then you can have other problems. But I know this sounds political because President Trump and Vice President Pence and Mr. Pompeo and all made building the wall so central to what they were doing. But they built 450 miles, but there's a 2,000-mile border between the United States and Mexico. So 450 was good, but it was barely even 25% of what had to get done. But President Biden has decided not to do that. And I I think there's a lesson, actually, and I think it should be a bipartisan lesson. I mean, I don't know that any Republican or any Democrat or any independent wants to see terrorists coming into the United States or human traffickers or human slave runners or drug runners. And so it seems like, in theory, this should be a bipartisan effort and that Biden can learn from Bibi, Uh, you know, that that the United States can learn from the lessons of of Israel. Not that we did it perfectly, but we really did, by God's grace and a lot of hard work and money, stop. You can't just, we want people to visit. We want people to come on on the Joshua Fund tour, you know, later this year. It's not that though you can't come to Israel. It's just that you can't walk in. You can't just walk in. You have to come in in a process. Right. And that's legal and it's healthy and it's safe. And otherwise, you know, it's not like we just wanted to have a wall. It, from 1948 and 1967, we didn't have any walls. We didn't right. want walls. Nobody wanted a wall. Sure. But once people started coming in to blow us to smithereens, there was no choice. And it worked. So I think that's not – it shouldn't be a controversial point, but it, unfortunately it is. But I think yeah. that's a great lesson that an Israeli can offer my American friends. Well, I think that's an incredibly good insight. And, you know, your novels also point out a number of the other issues that have been threatening, you know, the global stability, but particularly in the Middle East, you know, the Israel and all of those things. And and maybe just before we, uh, you know, look at some other aspects of your books, uh, talk a little bit about how in this book, it also points up the concerns that, that you see between the growing alliance between Russia, Iran, and Turkey, and some of these other bad players in the Middle East. Yeah, well, as I talked about in the nonfiction book, Enemies and Allies, this is a a dark alliance that's emerging in it. And in all of my Marcus Riker books, uh, this is the Libyan Diversion is now the fifth of them. I've been sort of illustrating 
what I'm learning about in nonfiction or on all Israel news or all Arab news or whatever, um, the, the Rosenberg report. So that's a real alliance that's really forming and it's really dangerous and dark, mm-hmm. but you can say that to a person, but the question is, do they hear you? Do they absorb it? Do, do they feel how dangerous that could be when a country, for example, like Turkey is going to the dark side, right? And you, right. they're a NATO ally. Why are they building alliances with Russia and Iran? Why are they buying weapons from Russia? Why are they, I mean, are they, are they a NATO ally? Are they an American ally or aren't they? They're supposedly a friend of Israel. And yet the Turkish government has increasingly gotten in bed with some very dangerous and bad actors. So this novel, you know, I won't go into the, the details, but yes, I'm continuing to try to illustrate through the story and through the characters something that I don't think most people have paid much attention to or realized that there's even a biblical significance to mm-hmm. those three countries forming alliance. Uh, mm-hmm. They're the three biggest players th- among the three biggest players in the Ezekiel 38 and 39 prophecies known as the war of Gog and Magog. The new novel, the Libyan diversion doesn't get into the war of Gog and Magog. It sort of separates that thinking. If you know that prophecy, then you're like, wow, this could be, you know, chess pieces on the board sort of being aligned if you don't know it then at least you're learning about the geopolitical threat even if you don't connect it to bible prophecy well joel i I have to say you know for most of our listeners who regularly listen to this podcast you know we touch on these issues from time to time and and one of the uh, really amazing aspects for me and it's been part of my education on this is just how many dots there are to connect and when you start (laughs) doing that they do create a tapestry and a pattern that's amazing. But I want to step back for a second. You know, you've, you've you written. You could use another analogy. And there's the dots, but there's also the, you know, the 5,000 piece puzzle. Yeah. Where you just yeah. fill it out on the table. But what if you didn't have the box? Covered? Right. <laughs> right. Like, and you're just thinking, there is something here. Yeah. But I don't know what it is. Maybe I can start doing the edges and yeah. then filling in sections. And that's kind of how you do it. And I'm trying to do both. I'm trying to give people a big picture yeah through this podcast, but but in the novels, it's almost like building the different puzzle pieces. So you sort of see it coming together and you're not quite sure where it's leading and a little bit more mysterious and emotional. Well, that's a really good way to analogize this too. You know, the puzzle pieces, if you see them scattered on a table without a picture to build against, you can see that there are some things that connect and that they have a certain perspective, but you, you would have no idea where it was all going. The beautiful thing about having the scripture is that it tells us this is what all of these pieces are building towards. And that's very, very cool. Let me say this to everybody listening. I'm talking to somebody who has sold 5 million plus novels and books. (laughs) Joel, uh, that is by anybody's definition, including the New York Times, a best-selling author. And you've always woven a certain element that isn't always found in in some of the best-selling books, but you've had Christian characters in your books living out their lives sometimes very crazy, uh, risky, thrilling situations as Christians. How do you approach that question? And, you know, sort of the bigger question, how does a Christian live for Christ when working in some of these real life situations, uh, maybe even sensitive situations? Yeah, uh, good questions. Uh, I'll try to give you very brief answers because those could be whole podcasts unto themselves, I'm guessing. It's a challenge to write a New York Times bestselling political thriller that's up against competing with all the best-selling political thrillers of the age, right? I mean, there are some great, great novelists out there, Brad Thor and Don Bentley and uh, 
Vince, well, Vince Flynn has passed away, but Kyle Mills, others have taken on the, uh, his series, um, and Daniel Silva, there's Mark Greeny. I mean, I could go on, but these guys are really good. And, uh, and some of them are selling much more than me. My challenge is how do I tell the story that I want to tell, but how do I do it when I have other constraints on me than everybody else, which is I just am not comfortable before the Lord of writing a novel with, with you know, filled with profanity. Tom Clancy in his day, and I loved his novels, except there was a lot of really harsh hard language that I was not comfortable with. And it got worse over time because as Clancy got more successful, nobody really wanted to edit him. Yeah. <laughs> too much economic power. And people just yeah. said, let's just, let's just copy edit it, make sure it's spelled correctly and then publish it like whatever. Yeah. And then there were a lot of graphic sexuality in a lot of these novels that I, I'm not going to do in my novel. So, right. and then my main character, Marcus Riker, okay, he's a CIA operative. He's a former Marine. He's a former secret service agent. The man knows how to kill people if he has to, but he's not an assassin. Right. Okay? He's not Jason Bourne. Mm-hmm. He's not James Bond with a 007 license, license to, kill. to kill. You know, he's not Vince Flynn's iconic character, Mitch Rapp. He, he can kill, but Marcus's character is by training and by personality is that he's a protector. Mm-hmm. His desire is to protect his country, its leaders, its values, its freedoms, not specifically to hunt people, yeah. except for in this case, Abu Nakba, because the you know the best defense is a good offense, yeah. right? And so there was a point at which you got to go after this guy and take this player yeah. off the board, right? Yeah. But that is another challenge that I have because Marcus is a believer, but he's you know he's the Secret Service agent, he's a CIA operative, he's not a big talker, he's not <laughs> preaching the gospel, right? He's not right. Billy Graham, or you know, so how do I work that in that you see him living his faith, and that when he talks about it, he does it the way that character would not just fill his mouth with a bunch of, you know, gospel sayings or Bible verses. And then the other thing is he's not someone who's morally comfortable with torture, which is an element that comes up in the Libyan diversion. Mm. The CIA, I won't say much, but the CIA director is basically chastising Marcus in a national security council briefing right before the president in front of the president, because Marcus isn't being tough enough on the prisoners at Gitmo. Mm. And Marcus is not comfortable with doing this. You know, one issue yeah. of the law, but the yeah. other issue is he is a believer. He has a moral code that not every other character in the other books have. Yeah, I could say, oh, I could be frustrated by that. I could be like, wow, I, I wish, but I don't wish I could fill this book up with graphic sexuality or profanity yeah. or whatever. So I have to use those constraints as complicators yeah. to the actual character, make his life harder because sure, if he just would, you know, torture the detainee. Maybe he'd get the information, but maybe he wouldn't. Maybe the detainee would just tell him whatever it took to stop the torture and none of it would be true. So anyway, those are other elements that I I have to work with. And it's not what every thriller writer or thriller reader is expecting or even wants. Well, So uh, those are some headwinds I have to face. I think it's a it's a tremendous a positive aspect for your books, and I've had so many. You know, we at the Joshua Fund we get a lot of the mail and and interest uh, in your books and asking questions, and people make comments about just how exciting it is to read these books. At the same time, they know they're not going to turn a page and all of a sudden go, "Oh, I'm reading something that I really, you know, I don't want to expose myself to," or however, you know, the books are very violent. Let's be honest. well, they can be sure, you know, but I, I, you know, this we. 
Well, we have so many women who love to read your books. I just want people to know that it's perfectly fine for a woman, a mom, a wife, you know, to read a copy of the Libyan diversion on the beach this summer. And I think more of great. my readers are women than men. If, yes. if I judge yeah. by all the 20 years of book tours, there are a lot more women right. coming. And I know that's not because of me. <laughs> <laughs> right. you know, having a face for radio. Uh, but, so it's not like I'm a some matinee idol or something. So now they're often saying I'm buying it for my father, for my, but they love it themselves. And so you know, my wife is a check on that because she's all, you know, like, like I, I, we have a joke. I have never said this actually publicly, but I'll say it to you, Carl, from the first novel, maybe the second, I had a scene where a sniper takes out somebody and I described it as his head exploded like a pumpkin. <laughs> And Lynn was just repulsed by that image. And she, I said, well, that's kind of what happens. Because, yeah, but you don't have to say that. Exploded like a pumpkin. I said, well, have you ever seen a pumpkin? To, yeah, I think I got. Anyway, so I put that in every manuscript for the last, I don't know, 20 years. Oh, and it's an Easter egg. And she always finds it. It's like a hidden Mickey or, it's I don't really, know. It's like this hidden thing that she always has to hunt. Where's the exploding where's the pumpkin? pumpkin head? And she always yanks it. And So, anyway. Joel, that's, that's beautiful. There are ways we try to make it so it's. Still that's digestible, beautiful. even with the violence. <laughs> well, and that's the thing I was going to come back to because all the guys that I know that read your books, and in my case, certainly, I'm just as wrapped up in the book. I mean, who really, at the end of the day, if you're looking for a thriller, you know, wants to, you know, have some gratuitous sex scene or something like that? When, when the motivations and the and the excitement comes from, you know, the character's conviction about, you know, uh, what needs to happen and the action that's taken. I mean, that's why you read a thriller. I don't. I mean, I'm, I don't know about other novel uh, seekers and other novel genres, but that's what's fun reading your books. Right, I'm um, not writing Harlequin romances right, or something. Exactly. But it's, it's also, of- but it's also interesting dealing with the faith element because that's another element that is not found in all the major thrillers. So how do I, as a follower of Jesus from a Jewish background, weave in faith but still hold the person who totally disagrees with me yeah. or actually is opposed to that? And i just give you one example. I know we got to wrap soon, but King Abdullah of Jordan. Yeah. Why has he read at least three of my thrillers when he's a direct descendant of the prophet Muhammad, the founder of Islam? Like, how have I held his attention sure. if my theology is very different from his theology? Yeah. And that's my job. My job is to, first, is to capture your attention with the cover. You know, people say, don't judge a book by its cover. Everybody judges a book. By I don't know a single person who doesn't think, wow, that's pretty cool. I might. Yeah. And then I have to grab you by the first sentence, the first page, mm-hmm. the first paragraph, the first chapter. And then I have to hold you all the way because you don't want to read my book. You want to watch Netflix. You want to go swimming. You want to play ball with the kids. You want to do anything else than sit and, I mean, not on you personally, but I'm just saying most people, <laughs> this is not their first love yeah. is to spend time with a 450 page novel. It's a crazy job. Right, Carl. I mean, the idea is my job is to get you to spend $28 and three or four days of your life reading something that's completely not true. What kind of job is that? Like, (laughs) you know, you sit there with an empty screen and a cursor that's blinking and it's just daring you Mm -hmm. to fill up this thing with 100,000 words that people will pay $28. Now, I'm Jewish. I wouldn't pay retail, so I'm not going to pay twenty eight dollars. But, but you know, I'm grateful for all the Gentiles that buy my book. But that cursor is just blinking, and I think that's why the word curse is right in there because it's just you know, you thinking, telling you you can't do this, Joel. You can't do it. So 
it's not a normal job and it's not a normal way to think, but yeah. I'm incredibly grateful that people have loved them. And uh, even if they've hated them, they still buy them and read them. And yeah. I love that the Joshua Fund and many ministries have thought, well, these are actually interesting gifts to give yeah. to people. And, you know, if, if I speak and whatever, as a way of saying, you know, if you want to understand the world that we're operating in, these are usually ministries that deal with the Middle East or other ministries, Russia or whatever, you know, it's a different way. That's not a normal way, but it's a creative way to capture people's attention and their imagination. And yeah. I enjoy it. Well, it, we enjoy it. That's the wonderful thing in talking to you about these things. And you may enjoy the writing or you may enjoy the, the outcome of having a book and the satisfaction of seeing a story completed and all of that. But it's those of us who get the benefit of sitting at the beach uh, or poolside or, you know, around a fire and uh, with our feet up and a nice steaming cup of coffee, uh, get a chance to read a real book with real characters and uh, have really exciting times. I have to, though, say uh, one of the big problems about picking up a Joel novel is you're going to lose a few days sleep. I just want you to know that it's one of those things that if you sit, you know, pick it up anytime, you know, after eight o'clock, you're going to be up for a few hours. So please uh, be warned in advance. That's um, right. It's good summer reading. You know, if you're just, yeah, if you're just at the beach and, and the, and the kids are all playing and then you're just sort of like, all right, I got a few minutes here. Let's uh, bang out a few chapters. Absolutely. Absolutely. Joel, is this book available on audio or is it available on Kindle? I'm not even, do I even say that? (laughs) Yeah, it's released in hardcover, but it's also in ebook. So yeah, the Amazon version of that is Kindle. The Barnes and Noble version is the Nook and there are others. Absolutely. And some people are really enjoying it that way. And those are actually cheaper uh, than the hardcover, right? I think that's like 16, 17 bucks versus 28. And then the audio version, you know, just get it on your phone. A lot of guys, not only, but a lot of guys I meet say, I I don't have time to read your books or others that I love, but I download it on my phone. And when I'm driving to work or I'm on the bus or, or I'm just telling my wife, yes, I will go pick up milk. No problem. 10 minutes there, (laughs) 10 minutes back, put your earbuds in or going for a run or, you know, a workout. It's a great way to get through a book that you think I would love that, but I just have absolutely no time in my schedule. Uh, I get through a lot of books that way. And I actually love the audio format. I use audible, uh, which which is an Amazon product, but there are others as well. Who narrates the books, Joel? Do you? Well, there's a great guy uh, on the most recent ones uh, named George Guidel, and he's fantastic. And he, um, I've never met him, but I first heard him when I was listening to thrillers by other friends of mine that are really great uh, best-selling thriller writers. And I thought, wow, I like that guy. I wonder if he's available. And he read the book and loved it. And uh, one of the Marcus Reagan books. And so I wow. think he's done, I don't know, three or four of them so far. And uh, wow. yeah, he's fantastic. Well, you you know, to all of our listeners, we're going to wrap up now. But, uh, you know, Joel, I just want to say to all our listeners, you can join the likes of, uh, you know, world leaders and others that have really benefited from listening to Joel's books and to reading them. I urge you today to get a copy of it. It's really great. And um, honestly, this is what's the best part of my job is getting to dialogue with Joel on uh, on issues like this. And now I get a chance to tell everybody that uh, Joel's new book, The Libyan Diversion, is available. Go out and get a copy and uh, pack it into your, uh, your vacation baggage and uh, get out to the beach and get out to the pool. Joel, thank you so much for your amazing commentary. And we're going to keep oh, praying that God uses this book and opens up people's minds, uh, you know, increasingly, you know, through the podcast and through all books like this and others about what God is doing in the Middle East. So thank you for your, your time with us from Jerusalem today. I appreciate it very much, Carl. And, uh, you know, we've even met people over the years who've gotten saved 
find the gospel presentation in some of the books. It's not it's always as strong and clear in some books because you can't make them feel like they're all you know gospel tracks. But uh, you know, Lynn and I did meet in Campus Crusade for Christ, and we were terrified about sharing the little 10-page Four Spiritual Laws <laughs> gospel tract. So I kind of thought, well, maybe I could just weave some of that into a 450-page novel. And to meet people who've gotten saved or come back to their faith or been inspired, even to go into ministry, full-time ministry, in the Middle East or other places, that's been – those have been benefits I just didn't see coming. But, of course, we prayed for them. But anyway, thank you, Carl. It's very, very kind for you to say that. Well, you're welcome. You know, uh, to all our listeners, if you would like to learn more about the Joshua Fund and, and our heart for ministry in the Middle East, you can visit our website at joshuafund.com. And there you can learn about all that we're doing in the epicenter to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus and how you can participate in the healing work we're doing in this critical region. As always, you can check out our show notes for anything you heard on the podcast that you'd like more information on. For Joel Rosenberg, I'm Carl Muller. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Epicenter. Hi, this is Joel Rosenberg, founder and chairman of the Joshua Fund, and I've got exciting news. In 2023, I'm inviting you on behalf of our entire board and staff to come to the Holy Land, to come to Israel on the next Prayer and Vision Tour. This is the 75th anniversary of the prophetic rebirth of the modern state of Israel back in 1948. And what is God doing here? It's amazing, spiritually, economically, in so many ways. There's been so much growth, so much progress, but the best is yet to come. And we want you to see it. We want you to walk where Jesus walked. We want you to see where the apostles ministered. We want you to see where people's lives were transformed by the love of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. We want you to see this city where Jesus died and rose again and where he's coming back, I hope soon. But in the meantime, come to Israel with the Joshua Fund. You can learn more about the trip, the itinerary, the cost, all the details at joshuafund.com. But sign up quickly because I think this thing is going to fill up fast. The Prayer and Vision Tour of Israel in the fall of 2023. I hope to see you there. This is Perseus Poku, host of the Sound Reasoning Ministry podcast. Learn how to share and defend your faith by listening to us weekly. Subscribe at lifeaudio.com.